as a buyer goes into the marketplace, they want to answer the question of, so what? You know, why should one of these firms be talking to you and contemplating a sale to you? Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up. So buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales and marketing and providing great products and services, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large, complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My guest today is David DeVoe. Dave founded DeVoe & Company in 2011 to help wealth management companies optimize their business decisions. The company has supported hundreds of firms in valuations, consulting, and investment banking engagements since launch. And I've had the pleasure of doing a number of deals with Dave over the years. And in fact, uh, knowing Dave from even before his uh, DeVoe & Company days um, as well. So we've known each other for a long time. And Dave is really one of the you know, true professionals in the area and is a phenomenal investment banker. And I am thrilled, thrilled, thrilled to have you on the show. Kind words, Corey. It's great to be here. Excellent. So Dave, before we get into what you do now, I'm going to take you, I'm going to take you back. And uh, I'm curious, when you were a little kid, what did you want to be growing up? Because my guess is, and I could be wrong, but my guess is it might not have been an investment banker in the wealth management space. <laughs> no, you are absolutely correct. I'm trying to remember. I, I remember race car driver, perhaps <laughs> astronaut. Um, as a matter of fact, it's kind of interesting. Um, uh, during my senior year at UC Berkeley, I accidentally started a clothing company. I had no intention, <laughs> no focus on business. I was your rudderless liberal arts major, didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And literally, I accidentally started a clothing company. And before I knew it, I was selling surf pants and shorts. I was manufacturing them and selling them to uh, a whole series of surf shops as well as three Nordstrom locations. So that was my uh, un unusual introduction to business. Well, I love it because you actually anticipated my second question on the podcast all the time, which is what was your first real, the first real business you started? And it sounds like that might've been it, huh? Absolutely. It was called Devo and Co no, that's my, that's my current one. It's called Devolution. Devolution. You've seen the themes here. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of evolution, but with a D up front, a play on the last name. And uh, yeah, yeah. That, that was the first company I did that for probably about nine months. Um, I think I got lucky with everything that we did, you know, before you knew it, we had Nordstrom reordering, et cetera. I should say I should, I did, because it was really just me. Um, and then I did another little company after that, or even just a business idea. And within probably two months, I, I lost everything on that, you know, smaller um, opportunity. But uh, I probably learned more in the, the four four to six weeks that I, I did a, a suboptimal um, little business than I did over the, the year or so that I was running Devolution. I love it. So, so actually, before we before we jump to the present, then what what, what was some of the bigger lessons you learned from that early uh, uh, failure? Yeah, yeah. I think um, well, one on a macro level, I think one of the things that I've realized is is you learn more when things go badly yes. than you do when they go well. You know, um, matter of fact, I had almost probably uh, gained a degree of I wouldn't say arrogance, but of um, expectation after 
randomly starting this company and everything going well, that um, business was really easy. So, you know, what I did after that is I, I actually did a, a, a series of t-shirts for, for UC Berkeley's big game. I was at Cal and, and we have this big annual game against Stanford. Um, so it was only, you know, I don't know, 5,000 bucks or something, but I did these t-shirts and quite literally everything went wrong. You know, the content of the shirt um, suddenly knocked out half the population. Guys were interested in it. The girls were not. Um, you know, I, I had a couple of my my friends go out and sell the t-shirts. I mean, this is what happens when you're in college. They end up drinking too much and they didn't pay attention or they, you know, they were bartering to sell the t-shirts, et cetera. And of course, the day of, of the big game too, I, I was dreadfully ill. So it was one of those things where I think on a macro level, it's just, you know, um, what can go wrong sh- will potentially go wrong. But on a micro level, it's more of, okay, risk mitigation. I think even to this day, it's sort of trying to think two steps ahead and figure out how to mitigate um, the potential risks that can emerge over time. So, you know, it's interesting for me. It's always interesting to me, the, the path of, you know, business executives and entrepreneurs. And, you know, because I, you know, you and I got to know each other when you were at, at Schwab and you you were doing, you know, internal, you know, consulting and uh, uh, to the various uh, uh, advisory firms out there. Uh, and really, you know, I mean, to put it on a macro level, not, you know, I know the specifics, but, you know, what was really trying to help them do it right and not make business mistakes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I had the opportunity. I spent a, a full 10 years at, at Charles Schwab and company, the vast majority of it on the, the Schwab institutional side. And, you know, it was this great experience where, as you said, sort of an internal consulting role, which eventually, you know, morphed into a broader thought leadership role um, within the industry, but just a great opportunity to, you know, initially pick people's brains that had done transactions, work, find out what worked well, find out, you know, sort of the hobgoblins that can be in the closet, uh, you know, what can go wrong. And then eventually, you know, starting to give advice and, and collaborate with folks like you, pick a lot of the brains of the experts in the industry. Um, and I think that that luxury position enabled me to to get a to get smart quickly, as as we used to say in business strategy, um, so that you know I could start adding more and more value to the clients I was working with. Yeah, and I, you know, and I was fortunate enough to uh, you know, Dave and I were, shared a couple of stages over that time, worked together on some projects, and and then uh, you know I was excited as was a lot of people in the industry when Dave launched uh, Devoe and Company. Um, so yeah, tell us uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, Devoe and Company and what you do, you and your team do now. Yeah, yeah. So we we started uh, just over seven years, seven and a half years ago. Um, just started with with just me. Um, the team's now grown up to uh, we're a total of ten people now. And uh, out of that group of ten, there there's eight of us that are doing the consulting work. Out of that group of eight, um, there's six of us that are managing director level. And the way I define managing director are folks that that essentially lead projects. Uh, and those projects are, are consulting, investment banking, and valuation. I'll come back to that momentarily. But that's another great luxury of our industry um, or, the, or the business. The group that, I, that I've been able to you know, sort of uh, be honored to work with um, is I, I joke half the team looks like me and half the team looks like our clients. So what do I mean by that? My background, I, I did business strategy at American Express um, right out of business school. Um, Amex has a group. It's a, about 35 primarily ex-McKinsey folks. There's some Bain and some Boston Consulting, a couple investment bankers in there, but but generally about 35 primarily ex-McKinsey folks. And that was really my foundation uh, of getting into business for real. We we all now know that I, I kind of won it running a couple small companies before I went to grad school, but coming out of business school, that was, that was sort of a core business. Um, so a couple years business strategy there. Matter of fact, at Schwab, 
I joined a business strategy team too. It was about a half dozen folks and primarily Boston Consulting Group folks. But that that sort of classical business strategy training is shared by Tim Forrest on the team as well. Tim was actually at McKinsey uh, for uh, four years out of business school. So he and I were trained sort of the same way, the McKinsey way. And then he was at, at Schwab for a dozen years as well. So you have, you know, sort of the two nerds in the group, you know, these sort of framework oriented, you know, hyper rigorous analytical folks. Um, and then the, the other four um, people that are MD level um, have all run uh, billion dollar plus REAs, essentially clients of ours. They've run some of the bigger businesses in, in the industry that we're in. So they've sat in our client's chair as president, CEO or COO. They've made the decisions to, you know, acquire this firm or put in this new comp plan or figure out how to segment their client base. They have the bumps and the bruises and, you know, the champagne corks in the, in the corner of their office too for things that went well. But it's this, it's this great thing where we have not only this sort of McKinsey way of doing things, very structured thinking and analytical rigor. Um, but we also have all this rich experience of, of uh, folks on the team that have had to made these, make these decisions and deal with the outcome. So the great thing about it is uh, the work that we do um, tends to be very uh, implementable, for lack of a better word. That's great. And, and just for our listeners, because uh, you know we have listeners who are in the RA space and, and, and some who are not uh, Plenty who are not because, uh, you know, about half my practice, for example, is in is in the uh, RIA industry. And then uh, half of it is uh, is all kinds of other industries from technology to, you know, you name it. So um, I just want to give some definitions for those listeners who are not in the RA space and also, uh, you know, have everybody understand. And I say this when I have people from any particular engine that what Dave's going to be talking about in terms of doing deals in this particular space Really, a lot of it applies, uh, you know, across industry. Right. Uh, You know, uh, whether we're talking about structuring. You know, the valuation multiples may be different in other industries, but still the, you know, the evaluation approaches, uh, you know, are, are, are often similar. So uh, for those of you who don't know the space, RAA is a registered investment advisor, and these are people who uh, provide wealth management services. And it's an industry that uh, Dave does a lot of work in, as, as do we. And uh, so these, you know, are people who uh, run uh, firms that have uh, assets under management that can range from you know, a few hundred million up to multi, multi-billions. Uh, and uh, so that's the space that uh, we're talking about. But again, uh, you'll see once uh, we get into some of the discussions, a lot of the principles apply across other industries as well. Yeah, 100%, Corey. As a matter of fact, you know, we, we joke, um, or I guess we point out that when we work with our clients, we're bringing, it might be 180 years of combined experience now within the wealth management space to our clients. But my counterpoint is, you know, forget all that experience. Um, forget all the exposure to, you know, running a company or managing a company, all these things. At, at the end of the day, what do we bring? We bring structured thinking to complex uh, problems. We bring strategic context. We're, we're a group that thinks very strategically about the option set. We tend to be goal-based consultants. So we're really going to have a foundation of what that, that manage, you know, the CEO or the management team or the company, what are the goals and objectives? What do they seek to achieve? either with their company, even their professional lives. Um, and then a lot of analytical rigor too. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, sure, we're focused on the wealth management space. Sure, you spend half your time on that industry. But but the tools that we use and the conversation we have today will probably apply to, to really almost any industry. Yeah, so, so let's talk about the various types of things that you get involved in, right? From M&A to, you know, uh, what they call tuck-ins to uh, ex, uh, you know, succession deals, which could be external, internal valuations. Uh, you know, give us an idea of the 
of the scope. And let's start jumping in, like with some examples and you know ways ways you work with people, and and really even more more importantly than that, because you know is is what for the value of the listeners is mm-hmm. is what kind of you know what kind of things should they be looking out for when they're doing a deal? What kind of lessons are there to be learned? You know, things to remember, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I think a development company, what do we do? Um, There's really three key areas and we'll be focusing primarily on on, uh, one or even two of them. Uh, The first thing we do is consulting. You heard the team. We can help any wealth manager, quite frankly, with any strategic decision they need to make. So that can be succession planning, really part of today's discussion. Um, That could be governance, uh, how to run the company better. It can get into um, equity migration. It can get into incentive compensation plans and HR. It can get into product development and segmentation, any strategic decision that um, a wealth manager wants to make. So that's one. The second one is investment banking, helping firms buy, sell, or merge, which will really probably be the core of today's discussion. And then we also, we have a third line of business, um, third service line, which is valuation. Um, your listeners will know momentarily, you already know this, I'm a, I'm a nerd. So when we started thinking about valuation or for 16 years now, as I've seen valuation in this industry, um, I just felt like it wasn't hitting the mark. So um, when we launched a bone company or I launched it and then this team came along, um, we were total nerds about valuation. We have a 30,000 cell discounted cash flow model. It's a elegant tool to essentially rip a company apart and put it back together again economically to come up with, you know, a, a defensible industrial strength valuation. So we may or may, get, may, or may not get into that. Um, but really the core of what I expect today's discussion is around that investment banking. So for us, we, we help some firms sell. And that could be part of shooting in and negotiating a deal they already have at hand. That can be a white sheet of paper to go out and find potential acquirers for them. Um, we also work on the other continu- end of the continuum with buyers. Some buyers you know, say, hey, Dave, we got a live one. Help us negotiate this deal. Um, in other cases, again, that white sheet of paper going to market and finding uh, sellers that are a good fit for them. And we also do a fair amount of merger work. Um, in many cases, these are two parties. Um, they see some strategic fit and power. But they want a third party, an objective third party to come in, not just to give them fair advice, but be that Sherpa to sort of get them up the mountain. And in many cases, too, they even share our costs. They're like, hey, we just we want your guidance. We're going to split the fee. Just hit it down the middle of the fairway and help us uh, craft a, a deal that makes sense for all parties. So talk to me about who is, because listen, we both experienced this and you and I, frankly, have talked about it in the past, right? You, you hear a lot of, uh, of, of firms saying that they're buyers or want to be buyers. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about uh, who are really buyers. What, it, what did it take to be a buyer? And what are some of the, some of the misconceptions that maybe some of the companies out, out there who think they want to be buyers, uh, who may not be buyers? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in our industry in particular, a very hyper-fragmented industry, there's, say, 10,000 firms um, in the industry and maybe 5,000 that have a degree of, of scale. And, Corey, you and I have done this. We've, we've been on stage with a couple hundred people, and we've said, okay, raise your hand if you're a buyer, raise your hand if you're a seller. And almost every hand in the room goes up when we ask if you're a buyer, and very few raise their hand when they're a seller, even though you and I know that a lot, of, a lot more um, in the audience are sellers are just reticent to say it. And I'm respectful of that. You know, there's some, some potential risks or trade-offs in raising your hand to say you're a seller despite the fact you've, you've built this firm that has value, you know, but on the buyer side, and this might be common for other industries as well. It's one thing to raise your hand and say, I'm a buyer. You know, I have capital. 
I have enough scale that I want to go out and, you know, acquire firms. It's one thing to have that intention. It's a completely different thing to be able to go out and do it. So, you know, at a former company, I actually created a, a diagnostic to help firms um, self-identify whether or not they were really in a position to go out and acquire. And if not, and a lot of them weren't, you know, to either go build those capabilities um, or decide, you know, hey, maybe I should just grow organically. This is more complex than I thought. So, you know, we, you know, some of those things to contemplate if you're flirting with the concept of acquiring firms, you know, some of it is very technical, like, okay, do I have capital? Do I have the amount of, of money and access to capital to go out and acquire in the marketplace? Um, and each industry is going to have its own unique deal structure. So you don't necessarily need that hoard of cash to put on the barrel head. In many cases, you know, there will be a down payment and other structure over time. Um, part of it is is truly having access to capital and being intelligent about it. You know, have I talked to lenders or do I need lenders? What does that look like? Have you... St- started to think through deal structure as an immediate um, relationship with how much capital you need in place. Depending on the deal structure you have, you know, that's going to influence the, the, how much capital you need. And also going into the marketplace and having a story. Hey, we structure deals this way. We can be flexible on these areas. We're not really flexible on those areas. That conversation alone will start to build credibility with, um, with sellers. So I'm happy to elaborate as appropriate, but there's two samples of, of some of the things that a buyer would want to have in place before they start uh, going into market. Yeah. And, and, and the one thing I would add that, that is so on the mark, Dave. And the one thing I would add is even more basic than that, which I know we've also talked about in the past, which is that, uh, which is them having actually uh, some sort of value proposition for, for people that they want to acquire. I mean, a lot of them understand they need a value proposition for their clients. And some of them think the value proposition for their clients is the same as for somebody that they want to bring in. And, and that's not the case. And some of them think, you know, that they're really nice people and they have a, you know, a, a good firm and it's a nice place to work as a value proposition. And that's not either. Right. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I think, you know, by all means, um, that's part of the story is, is knowing what your value proposition is for your end clients. Matter of fact, that'll help you with another topic we might talk about, which is when you come into the market, you want to have a target profile, who's a good fit. And you know, who isn't? How do you save right. your time? So that's a component of it is that end client, the experience, you know, the, de- the depth that you might have in a certain part of the market, et cetera. But as or perhaps much more important is, you know, your value proposition to that organization that might be selling to you. Um, so, you know, it might be, hey, we have an easy path for you to uh, exit and retire on your own terms. It could be, you know, join forces with us. We're one of the biggest firms in the industry. And we're going to help you run better, you know, eliminate some expenses, be more efficient. It could be we're, we're big and we have a broader product set or service set or set of capabilities. We can help you do what you're doing better with more clients or, or improve the, the relationship that you have with your clients. And in some cases, too, we even see, say, expertise. Um, uh, again, some, some, uh, some firms um, really are focused on the technical side, but they're not necessarily business experts. They, they're running a company, but they might not be ninjas at running a company. By contrast, a buyer might say, hey, we are ninjas. We have industrial strength capabilities to, to have you review your employees better, to, um, to optimize your compensation structure better, to market more effectively, to, to track these different elements. There's a whole host of things. So, you know, just a couple different examples, but as a buyer goes into the marketplace, they want to answer the question of, so what, you know, why should one of these firms be talking to you and contemplating a sale to you? 
That's great, Dave. And so let's let's jump to the other side now. Let's say what is it? Uh, what makes an attractive seller, and what do sellers need to get in place if they don't have it uh, to be uh, you know a good uh, target for somebody who wants to acquire them? Yeah, yeah. So a few thoughts. You know, I, I think, and this goes for both. I, I'd start with goals and objectives. You know, having that foundation of what you seek to achieve, um, we'll put it in the context of sellers, but you can flip it for buyers too. They should have clear goals and understand how that M&A strategy fits within. So, you know, that, that seller, we always encourage them to start thinking through what they seek to achieve, perhaps with their organization over the next five plus years. Um, and in some cases, selling to another organization might accelerate the achievement of those goals and objectives. You know what? Maybe it doesn't. Maybe merging with a firm would better achieve those goals and objectives. Maybe acquiring a firm might better achieve those goals or objectives, or maybe none of these transactions. There's just other tools in the tool shed. Instead, they shouldn't be selling um, or buying or merging. They should be putting um, a professional management team in place, or they should be um, fixing this this element or that. So we always encourage them to, to start with clarity about what they seek to achieve as a company. And depending on the industry that, that of the listeners, oftentimes this season gets into a, a personal and professional level for the for the executives, the executive team as part of this. You know, selling your company to another organization cannot just be incremental benefit. It can be transformational, not just to your company, but even how you spend your time, you know, getting these things off your plate or reallocating how you spend your time, getting rid of these elements to focus more on those elements. Those are all part of the equation. So I know your question, um, and feel free to push me further to go into the characteristics of of what makes a seller attractive. But I think even before Solon starts thinking about that, they should have a better strategic context or have that strategic context for what they seek to achieve and if a, a, a transaction will support that. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I agree, Dave. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. So let's take, let's go from there, which I think is the right, you know, uh, starting, not only starting point, but, 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 uh, you know, overview. And let's, let's drill down a little bit. Uh, you know, one of the things that, for example, on my end as a lawyer, you know, and I know, uh, you know, you help companies on the due diligence side as well is, you know, having done so many deals, I know uh, a couple of things. I know that, that that buyers are always worried about what they don't know about the, you know, the, the, the firm that they're potentially buying and, and where it can go wrong. And, you know, and if it's a bigger firm, you know, whose job might be on the line if they if they know something. Um, so one of the things I always do is 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 help prepare companies and due diligence beforehand, because I know what uh, the buyer is going to be looking for. So as opposed to trying to scrounge around to make sure that they have you know, all their uh, T's crossed and I's dotted almost literally, you know, do they have all of the signed contracts with their clients? Do they, you know, uh, you know, are there, you know, uh, and this is more on your side, you know, are their financials in shape? Uh, you know, do they, you know, do they basically have their house in order? So when uh, a buyer comes in to do due diligence, they're not spooked by something that actually there may not, not be any fire there, but there, but there seems to be smoke there and they get worried. So, um, you know, so talk to me about how you prepare uh, a buyer and what things they need to have in place to be uh, attractive and also not to blow a deal. Yeah, no, that is great stuff. I think um, one, and we, we can come back to it, but the, the story that's told to the buyers, usually plural, but sometimes not, but the story is so critical. Um, and having an awareness of not only your goals, but your strengths, your weaknesses, the potential way your puzzle piece might fit into different puzzles can be extremely powerful and actually optimize the negotiation that you'll ultimately get into. So I think, you know, part of this is strategic thinking through, okay, 
Um, let's have a diagnostic of the firm. What are the strengths, weaknesses, capabilities, threats, opportunities, all these different things um, so that you can go into the marketplace selling a nice, tight, succinct story, but that also can influence the target profile of who might be a good fit for different types of buyers. Um, again, I, I'm getting distracted by all these great things to talk about. Um, specifically, very early on in the process, um, you know, we, we think of, of mergers and acquisitions. We break it into three key um, phases of the life cycle. And that first phase is, is sort of the planning and fundamentals. So in this stage, we're not just talking about the goals. We're not just talking about the story, but we're valuing the, the, the potential seller to know what they're going to be worth in the marketplace. And, and Corey, you know, ripping a, a page from your playbook, you're so spot on. In this phase, we're not only gathering the information, we're helping them start to put together the due diligence documents that they need. So rather than just sending us scribbles or pieces of Excel to, to try to do the valuation, we're letting them know in advance, we want to put um, together the all the supporting information that you're going to need. You know, you won't need it for three or four months, but let's start gathering it now. And I'll, uh, and I'll use a, a direct example. It's heartbreaking, really. Um, we had one client um, who uh, went through this process. Um, good news, growing so quickly, you know, almost hard to get his or her attention. Um, and that's a good problem to have. But as a result of that, wasn't as buttoned down on certain elements like this due diligence process as, as we typically like to have. So we valued them up front and we moved downfield. We didn't have all the ducks in a row. Eventually, an offer on the table, letter of intent, really, I, I think a phenomenal phenomenal opportunity for them and deal. And then it was a go time. It's let's do due diligence. Let's start crafting the final agreement. And, you know, a week goes by, two weeks go by, we start raising flags. We're like, hey, you know, seller, you really got to get these ducks in a row. A matter of fact, you got to get them in soon because this is going to create that smoke that you just alluded to. Um, it got long enough that we cautioned and eventually it was the punchline, but we cautioned that one of two things is going to start to happen at this point. Because it's taking so long to put these, these documents in place, um, put them in a data room, the buyer is going to start wondering either you're playing around with the numbers behind the scenes to try to make a match, or you're just not buttoned down. You're not run like a nice tight machine, and that's a different type of yellow flag. And sure enough, this, this actually disrupted the deal. It wasn't the CEO of the, of the acquirer that um, ultimately walked away, but it was a private equity firm that was backing that acquirer. Um, mm. And, you know, these are big numbers. These are, you know, um, eight-figure transaction that we're talking about here. So I think, you know, back to your point, having those due diligence items in place um, is not just an exercise to, to save time and our energy down the road. It ultimately can affect, uh, literally affect whether or not um, a deal gets done. That's great. And, and what kind of, uh, you know, either on the seller or the buyer's side, um, you know, what, what kind of resources do, do they have to have in place in terms of people and, you know, and energy and money? Because you, you talked about capital a little bit, but I think one of the things uh, in my experience that people underestimate is that, listen, if you're going to do a one-off deal, you, could, you might be able to manage to do that and run your business and figure it out. But companies that do, uh, you know, certainly on the buyer's side, companies that acquire regularly, uh, I mean, they, they build infrastructure around that, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think even, you know, for that one and done, someone who's going out to do a, a single transaction, clearly I'm biased to a degree, although we, we run our company in a very unbiased way. We're like, hey, we want to help you with whatever you want. We're going to give you objective advice. At the end of the day, you know, to go out even as a buyer and, and do a transaction, there's just a lot of risk on the line. You know, someone is doing something for the very first time. 
So to not only hire a good lawyer, but, you know, hire an investment banker, hire a consultant, someone, just whatever it is, surround yourself with that right team um, because this is a, a critical um, business decision that if it goes wrong, it's not only money poorly spent, but it, it can actually start to affect your entire organization too. It becomes a distraction. Um, so I, I strongly encourage folks to get, you know, a team in place so that they have those ducks in a row. Now, clearly anyone who's going out and, and they're seeking to do several transactions, you know, an investment bank is not only arms and legs, but brains to, to go out and help get that done. Yeah, that's great. So, um, let's jump a little bit into the area of valuation. You, you mentioned it before. It's a big, you know, it's a piece of what you do. Uh, there are all different, um, there are all different valuation methodologies. You, you mentioned discounted cash flow before. Some of the listeners may not know what that is. Uh, they've heard of revenue multiples. They've heard of maybe EBITDA multiples, maybe EBOC multiples. There's yeah. so many different ways and it gets confusing to people. Can you start just sort of lay that out for us, what all those different things are? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm slightly oversimplifying, but, but very slightly. There's, there's only a couple ways to value a firm. Um, and, you know, I, I'm a nerd, been to Cornell Business School. I took all those classes, you know, live and breathe that stuff. But at the end of the day, there, there's really three ways to value a going concern. Um, there's, the, there's book value, there's comparables or multiples, and then there's discounted cash flow. Um, and then from there, we'll, we'll riff and we'll talk about different strategic, you know, premiums and things like that. But out of those three ways, it really depends on the industry. So, for instance, book value. Book value is a calculation of all the hard assets associated with an organization. So, you know, if for our industry or my industry, the REA space, it doesn't apply um, because the hard assets for um, a wealth advisor are some desks, some computers, some chairs, you know, it's maybe a hundred or a couple hundred thousand dollars for a firm that's worth millions or tens of millions of dollars. It's just a, the hard assets are not what the value of that organization is. Now, by contrast, firms that have lots of equipment, they have lots of inventory, they have buildings or fleets of trucks, all these different things, you know, that can be a more appropriate way or a component, a critical component of some of the valuations. But for, for the financial services industry, for the most part, that's not part of the equation. And, and frankly, Dave, I mean, the, the far majority of companies, in at least in the U.S. these days, are service businesses. Yeah, and so uh, so not only wealth management, but I, mean, I would say that that valuation methodology is not applicable to, the, you know, the majority of businesses. The majority of firms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so in many industries, you start to hear the second ca- technique, which is comparables, you know, multiples. So that can be, you know, two times revenue or seven times cash flow. Um and, you know, I think that's getting warmer, right? Um, and it's w- toward what is an, uh, an appropriate way to, to optimally value firms, at least in our business. But the multiple is, is you know, those multiples of, of this metric or that. Essentially, um, what you're saying is um, typically for this industry, we have a lot of good data that indicates that firms play in this range. Now, um, I'll be very specific because some on the phone might say, or listening in might say, Dave, come on, give me a break. PE ratios is an example of comparables. And that's used by people way smarter than you'll ever be, Dave. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what are you talking about that that's not necessarily a great technique? Well, that can be very powerful and agree. There's, there's people a lot smarter than I'll ever be that are doing it. And, and let me talk briefly about why that might not apply to our industry as well as others. The comparable approach goes like this. You say, okay, you know what? Let's, let's use the market technique, you're going to take, you know, 20 or, or, you know, maybe even a hundred firms, but let's say there's about 20 comparable organizations. And let's, let's say we're talking about, um, I don't know, Wells Fargo. We want to value Wells Fargo. So what we can do is we can 
pull um, a whole bunch of co- companies that, that fall into that code, you know, what are organizations like Wells Fargo? So we have, you know, Schwab and all B of A and all these other publicly traded firms. And we're going to stack them all up and look at the price to earnings ratio. And we'll, we'll stack them up from, from top to bottom. And we'll say, okay, Wells Fargo, are they in the top decile or the third decile? Or, or gee, they're not running a great organization. They should be in the ninth or 10th decile. And you start calibrating based on a whole variety of factors where you think they should play within that zone. This is a slightly oversimplified way to do it. But that, that's what's happening. Now, that works well with publicly traded firms. Publicly traded firms, you know, you have a great P, the price in that, you know, you just hit Google, uh, you know, yeah. Yahoo Finance Refresh and turn and, you know, down to the minute what that firm is worth. So you have great intelligence on what the, the valuation of that firm is. You also have great detail into the quality of that company, you know, audited financials. Um, they're required to share information. You can run, you know, the revenue per employee, the 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 profit per client. You can uh, look at the attrition. You just have unlimited amounts of information that you look at. So consequently, you're in a position to better determine where they should play in those different deciles or quartiles and when you're comparing them to others. When you're using privately held firms, you don't have that luxury. You don't have any of that information. So even though you know, Corey, you and I might be talking about a firm and say, hey, you know what? I think this this one might be worth, you know, seven or eight times cash flow or, you know, nine or 10, that sort of parlor talk. That's you and me as experts having a ballpark. But the counterpoint is, is we're using very rough math, math, my, you know, 14 year old kid, because he's easily doing his head to value a firm that's worth millions or tens of millions of dollars. I personally don't think it's, it's a re- responsible way to value a privately held firm. Yeah. So, so talk about, and, and, you know, so listen, there are so many factors that can come into it. Right. Uh, and I know, you know, I'm not, uh, I know you have a proprietary valuation uh, sure. model and I'm not looking for you to give it all away, but I mean, uh, listen, there are some things like, for example, you know, people might not think about like uh, length of client relationship, age of the clients, uh, you know, growth rates, uh, various other things that go into figuring out a, a, a more, uh, you know, targeted uh, and accurate valuation uh uh, approach, right? Yeah, yeah. No, you're spot on. So the the discounted cash flow gets into that rich amount of detail. So you know, if let's say in that situation, Corey and I are just batting around. Okay, G a firm is worth eight or nine times. Part of what's going into that is is he and I are thinking through. Okay, what's the growth trajectory of this firm? Is it a fast growing firm or a slow growing firm? Is it a machine or or driven by someone's charisma? You know, what's the what's the profit margins? That are those going to expand or contract? We're looking at you know the risk profile. Gee, you know this this thing has a lot of you know hobgoblins that could come back and haunt it or or not. So a discounted cash flow, at least ours, the intention is really there to capture all of those elements and create a very nerdy tool to do that. So, you know, what is a discounted cash flow? Essentially what you're doing is you're looking at, you know, we use five years of historical data, starts to give you some for different trend lines, you know, gee, what's the revenue growth been over time or in our industry, what's the asset growth as well. And what's going to change that over time as we start to, forecast in the future. Let's say we're going to forecast five years out. We're looking at um, the revenues, the expenses, how those might shift over time. And ultimately, we're yielding a, um, a projection of profitability over the next five years or so. And we're using Excel to you know, project this out, and I'm happy to get detailed, but create a terminal value at the end of that period too. And then we're discounting all these, these cash flows back to present day because this is a risky transaction. We don't know for a fact all those, all those profit numbers are going to 
come. So we got to make a calculation in terms of how much, how risky those are. So um, that modeling that you're doing, you know, as I said, we're nerds about, we're breaking growth into 16 different ways that a firm can grow. When we're looking at the expenses, we're, we're looking at not only, you know, employee compensation increasing with, um, you know, the GDP, but also there's a constrained industry that we're in. So there's something on top of that. We're, we're thinking through when people are going to get promoted and what sort of balance they might have in their comp. You know, we're really nerdy now. And on the, on the risk side, you, you ticked on a couple of them. We're looking at things like the, the age of the clients in our industry, which is important, or the, the concentration. Do they have one or two or three big clients? And then, you know, if those clients le- left, they'd be at risk, you know, near and dear to your heart. Do they have non-competes, non-solicits? You know, do they have a succession plan? All these different things. You know, we use 48 different factors that go into it where you want to assess the risk. So um, clearly, it's a lot more complicated than seven to eight times cash flow. But once you do this, um, you have a business plan for what this organization is going to perform like in the future. You have a much better understanding of how this will be integrated into your organization. So consequently, it's, it's just a much more accurate and robust way to value a firm. That's great. And, and, uh, and you know, it's amazing how often I know uh, all of us who do this get, uh, and even the industry press, you know, will we'll talk about, uh, I mean, you know, it's one thing to talk about a multiple cash flow or even a... Uh, you know, but uh, you even hear things like multiples of revenue, which are even worse because, uh, you know, at, at, I mean, at, at the simplest level, my firm could be twice as profitable as your firm. You know, so mm-hmm. to go on, yep. you know, uh, so. Um, so, Dave, listen, there are so many things that we could talk about, uh, but obviously we're limited on time. What I'd love to do is, you know, we've been talking about things uh, that apply uh, even uh, across industries, but I want to get specific on the RA industry because you really have your you know, your, your, your finger on the pulse and you see what's happening. And listen, there's been some really interesting evolutions that affect deals and, and growth, et cetera, uh, from everything from, uh, uh, you know, private equity and other money, you know, coming into the space. Um, some, some firms that have been going public, uh, consolidators, aggregators, a lot more, you know, various types of platforms out there. Um, and then you and I have talked for years on the evolving demographics, uh, you know, of the industry, uh, which frankly, you know, have accelerated deals, but not necessarily yet at the pace that, you know, I might have thought uh, would have happened already. So uh, talk to me about the trends that you're seeing, how you think they're going to affect uh, RA firms and, and deals in the space. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, trends are near and dear to, to my heart. We're, we're just about, I think even tomorrow morning, we come out with the Naveen DeVoe um, REA M&A um, deal book that we do once a quarter. And it'll, it'll show that, you know, we had yet another record year here. Um, I think you're spot on too. Despite these record number, uh, the record amount of activity we've seen over the last you know five years or so, um, there's still not the number of transactions that one would expect for the industry of our size. So, Corey, to me, the it, it, it's actually a red flag. Each year we see, you know, what I think is is half the number of deals we should be seeing. It just means there's more supply that is going to come onto the market at some point. Um, I think there's just a growing amount of advisors that need to sell externally. In many cases, advisors want to sell internally, but more and more often we're seeing firms just become too valuable for the next gen to be able to to afford them. And um, advisors are just not planning the way they should be. Only about 30% of advisors have have a a written succession plan in place. So um, I think as I look forward the next five, seven, even 10 years, M&A will likely continue to increase uh, fairly aggressively, I expect. 
we might even see um, one or two times where we just see a surge of sellers come onto the marketplace. And that surge may very well, I expect at some point, will outstrip the ability of all the buyers out there to be able to acquire. You know, we talked about it earlier. You need to be a qualified buyer in many cases to be able to get a deal done. And even these teams that are acquiring firms, there's just, you know, so many hours in the day, so many people to work on a given deal or integrate a deal. So I think we might ex- even experience just when I look at the the supply of the potential buyers, sellers that need to come onto the market. I think we may hit a point over the next uh five or seven years where there, there simply is a doubling of the number of, of sellers in a given year, and they just can't be cleared in the marketplace. And, and you know, the other interesting thing for me before I go through our final questions is, uh, you know, especially, I mean, you know, the ups and downs of the economy and specifically the market affect all businesses. But, you know, this particular industry, which gets paid on, you know, uh, mainly on assets under management, you know, if the market goes down, their revenue goes down, uh, even if they're providing the same services, the same number of clients, et cetera. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing that I've seen, and uh, you and I have both been around for, let's say, more than one cycle. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, the interesting thing that I've seen is that, um, unfortunately, when prices are higher and the business is good, you know, business is easier and people sort of, you know, cruise along, whereas that might be a good time for them to consider selling. And then uh, inevitably what happens with some of them is the next down market comes and things aren't as good and they're a little tougher and they're not making as much money and it's a bad time to sell. But they sort of look at it and they say, hey, I'm 60, you know, five or 62 or whatever I am, you know, and uh, it's, you know, going to take five years for this thing to really come back up to its highest. Do I really want to wait that whole cycle out? And, you know, some of them end up selling, uh you know, at a uh, less than ideal time from a seller point of view. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're in an industry where no one wants to time the market. That's, that's a, a challenging thing to do. Conversely, you need to be aware of how the market can affect your own timing. And I think the shock to the system that we've had over the last couple months here, you know, sort of opened up some some uh, scabs from 2008 that a lot of people in the industry had, you know, for, for viewers that aren't RAAs or listeners, um, you know, 2008 was when we saw that stock market, you know, massive decline. Um, and for this industry, it went from essentially all-time highs for valuations to all-time lows. I've been in this industry 17 years now uh, for valuations within about, you know, a few weeks. And then it stayed at that nadir these very low valuations for months and months and quarters and quarters. And it took a couple of years to, to, to return to a point of normalcy. Well, here we are yet again, as, as you noted, valuations are now just barely off the all-time highs that we saw. Valuations are extremely high in this industry. And I think we just had a big shock to the system. You know, we had some big drops and, and folks probably started realizing or jogged many of their memories the way our our, our switchboards are lighting up here. It seems to be the case anecdotally and the conversations we're having where people realized, okay, wait a sec. If I want to, if I'm planning on selling in the next two years and Arben getting comes again um, before that two year point, I might be on the sideline for another five years, you know, and you, so I think it's important for advisors to not try to time the market and get the all time high, but, you know, conversely, Valuations are extremely rich. What's underreported too, Corey, is is deal structures are more attractive than I've ever seen either. Um, sort of the under, uh, underreported part of that equation. And if the right time for an organization to sell is you know within the next year or two, um, understanding the the potential risk too that if there's a market correction, what that can do to the timing is um, just um, disciplined 
uh, management. Yeah, absolutely. So Dave, before I ask you my last question, uh, I'm sure that listeners have gotten a huge value as, uh, as people always do when, you know, when, when you're being interviewed or been on stage. Uh, so uh, if they uh, want to find out more about you or reach out to you, uh, what's the best place for them to go? Yeah, yeah, let's see. So um, our website, you know, www.devoandcompany.com, just fully spelt out, or, or my email address is David Devo, D-E-V-O-E, at devo-co.com, devo-co.com. Great. And, uh, and the, the deal report you do quarterly, is that something they can subscribe to or get on the list if they want? Yeah, absolutely. If you go to the website, it'll, it'll be posted there. And by the way, you know, we have several years now posted there. And don't just ignore them because you're like, oh, that's, that's Q, <laughs> Q1 from 2018 or 2016. Who cares? You know, once we get through the numbers on the first page or two, then we start getting into rich data. You know, in the most recent issue, we, we do a byline article or a side article, I should say, on, you know, the next generation. And as a principal sells, what's the impact on the next gen? You know, last issue, we talked about valuations and what's driving it up. We talk about waves of, of buyer categories and what, what we're likely to see over the, over the future. So the old ones have a lot of rich data, too. So you can go to the website and see them there. And I believe there's probably a link, too, that you can click on or send me an email and we'll get you added to the list. Excellent. Excellent. So my final question for you, Dave, uh, is... Um... You know, one of the themes that I'm a big proponent of is authenticity. It's, uh, you know, my, my, my book is on authentic negotiating. I, I talk about authentic deal making. And for me, authenticity is uh, it's not just, uh, you know, integrity and morals. And because those are, I mean, that's sort of, you know, I don't think you'd be authentic if you're, if you're have no integrity. Um, but it's also being uh, like acting in a way, making your business decisions, running your life in a way that's aligned with really your inner truth, what's true for you. And I think, uh, you know, it's interesting because I know you, you know, pretty well. And, you know, you describe yourself as a, as, as a nerd and, you know, and all that stuff. And, you know, it's easy to think, you know, that, uh, yeah, I mean, the numbers are important, et cetera. But you also talked about, you know, clients' objectives. And one of the things that, you know, in, in order to get the objectives, you really need to go, in my mind, to a positive authenticity. So uh, I'm, I'm wondering for you, in your own business decisions with your own company, you know, whether it's the kind of clients you choose to work with, the people you choose to hire, the types of, you know, deals you used to do, you know, you choose to do. Um, what do you do to make sure they're authentic to, you know, your truth, your vision, what, you know, what you, what you're here to do? Yeah. Yeah. I want to answer two ways uh, because um, one is about how authenticity affects M&A and then answer your question too about, you know, me and Devon company, because cool. you've touched on something that's, that's so, so critical, Corey. And, you know, when I, when you, even when you sent the title of the book and you had me review it before you released it and I started reading it, it resonated so much. Um, and it's so important for everyone to, on the call to know this. When you, when you go to sell um, or buy, you know, I'll be very specific. We work with sellers up front. We say, okay, you heard me say some of it. Goals, objectives, you know, the characteristics of your firm, the strengths as well as the weaknesses. I mean, part of strategically what we're doing as an investment banker is determining what those weaknesses are. Every firm has them. Um, and then determining, okay, when do we bring this up? Is the first meeting or is the fourth meeting? Do, does the banker bring it up? Does the person, you know, what's the best way? Um, and then part of that is we are creating positioning around this organization, the story that we're going to tell in the marketplace that is going to not only generate interest, but generate a, ideally a premium for the firm. There's going to be firms out there that will pay a strategic premium because this story resonates with them. Their puzzle piece 
fits well into, into the acquirer's puzzle in a way that unlocks all this great value for everyone involved. Now, as we're crafting that story, we know what's going to sell in the marketplace. We know what buyers are looking for. Even on the, on the buyer side, we know what sellers are looking for. And we will help craft that story. But we use your exact word, Corey. We say through the process, we're going to be sharing and crafting the story. But you need to, you need to have your, your compass out and make sure that everything that we're starting to talk about is authentic for you. We don't want to go into the marketplace and have something that resonates really well, but it's not really authentic to this organization. That's just, you know, bearing a problem that's going to rear its head later. So authenticity throughout this whole process is so, so powerful. And then, you know, for myself, development company, you know, I find myself each year, I've been running a company seven years now, each year, this concept of authenticity, of, of values, of principles, becomes more and more important. You know, we're, we're able to get really smart people to come and work at development company. But when it doesn't work out, it's usually because of values and principles and, and priorities and the way they think about uh, not just the business, the company, the work they do, how they live their lives. Um, so I think, you know, as I'm maturing and getting older and, and um, it's starting to make more and more sense to me why this, this cultural element values um, principles, authenticity is, is so important. So yeah, it's a, it's a compass that I continue, continue to try to refine um, just because of if I'm, if I'm very attuned to it at any given time, especially highlighting process and critical business decisions, it really puts me, uh, me and the company on the path to, uh, to gain the, the, the optimal success. Great. D- Dave, I so appreciate you being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Fueling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't. And it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor, other than that the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals, and then they take action. It's time to refuel. So until next week, Corey Kupfer signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at fuelingdeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth.